musicians for your help in leading us. Some good old hymns. When I walk the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Lead me through the swelling current, land me safe on Canaan's side. Love that song. All right. Well, this week, we're continuing our study in transformation, learning to live in the kingdom of God. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about this idea of what Paul Miller calls the J-curve, the Jesus curve, as the pattern for our discipleship. So last week, we thought about Thesis 15, transformation into the image of the Messiah requires that I embrace the J-curve as the pattern for my discipleship. And that pattern, that J-curve, is death and resurrection. Okay? And we, along with that then, have been talking about this idea of life in Christ. What does it mean to be within the, the force field of the Messiah? And if we think of uh, this life as a kind of pyramid, the base of that pyramid is the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's this idea that, that on the cross, Jesus dies not for his own sin, but for mine. And so, I am someone who, by faith then, in what he has done, am counted righteous before God. That's Paul's discussion of justification, especially in Romans and in Galatians. Uh, Luther calls this alien faith because what he means is it's a faith, it's a righteousness that is rooted outside of me. This is, this is not about my becoming or being a good person. This is about Jesus being absolutely faithful to God. And by faith, I am brought into that sphere of his influence. What I do is believe in Christ, and believing in Christ, I am counted righteous before God. That's, that's the groundwork of the Christian life. That's the groundwork of salvation. But now on that... We've been thinking about this idea of the J-curve. In the J-curve, I come to understand that the pattern of Jesus' life, the dying and the rising again, is a pattern that belongs to discipleship. So, so I am called, not just once, but again and again, to live out this pattern of dying so that God can raise me to new life. The dying that I do, of course, is not uh, a dying for my sins. Okay, that, because Jesus took care of that. So what is this dying we're talking about? Well, it's, it's a dying to self. There's, there's all that stuff in me that needs to be transformed so that I can be prepared to live in God's kingdom. 
which means that the old self, the old patterns, need to be put off or they need to die. And it's out of that death then, as I die to self, that new life appears which looks more like Jesus. So I'm in the school of the Messiah and the lessons every day are to conform me more to the pattern of Jesus' life, but the pattern of his life is a pattern of dying and rising again. Make sense? So this is what we've called the righteousness of love. It's what Martin Luther called proper righteousness. This is what's happening in you, in me. So the basis of the Christian life is to believe in Christ, but the ongoing character of the Christian life is to become like him. And it's, it's this upper level then, this J-curve, and our relationship to the J-curve, that's what we're thinking about. And I want to pursue that uh, a little bit further now for a, a couple weeks. Uh, Paul Miller, in his uh, great book I've mentioned before, which is just called J-curve, uh, identifies three kinds of J-curves that we experience as we follow Jesus. And uh, I want to talk about the first of those today. We're going to call it When Suffering Finds Us, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul has a big problem he's trying to address, and that is that in his absence from the city of Corinth, some, uh, some false teachers have come along, some uh, competitors to Paul, who have claimed, among other things, that Paul is an inferior apostle because he wasn't part of the original group, right? And these people are presenting themselves as, as uh, kind of super apostles and denigrating Paul's work. And, uh, and so Paul finds him in a strange place, himself in a strange place of uh, not wanting to talk about himself but because of what's been happening, he feels that he must talk about himself. So you get this strange tension in Paul in 2 Corinthians between boasting and not boasting. And that's right here in chapter 12. Apparently, one of the things that the, uh, the, the false teachers said was, well, you know, look, we've had some extraordinary visions and experiences of God, and, and this guy Paul, you know, who's he? So Paul's going to address that. Here's what he says. He says, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. He doesn't want to do that, but he's feeling forced to it. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Now, so there's a strange paradox, see? <clears throat> when he's forced to talk about himself, he'll only do it in the third person. I, I know a man. 14 years ago, he, he was caught up. 
But I don't want to boast about myself. It's just, it's just a remarkable way he develops this. But he says, verse 6, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations, which makes it clear that the person he's talking about is himself. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, let's think here a bit about suffering in the will of God. Paul says... I was given a thorn. Doesn't explain what the thorn is. There are a few people out there that argue that that when Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, uh, he's referring to uh, his sinful aspect or a part of his character. Uh, Paul sometimes uses flesh that way. I don't think that's what he's doing here. Uh, Majority of commentators agree that flesh is referring to his body. I was given a thorn in the flesh. We do not know what it is. All kinds of speculation. Uh, Probably as good as any is uh, Sir William Ramsey's uh, speculation that what Paul had contracted was malaria, which was uh, recurring. And so it it would hit him with the fever and all that and would just knock him flat. Uh, it's as good a guess as any, I think. So, we don't need to know what it is, but we need to know what Paul says about it and how he responded to it. Paul says that this thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan or an angel of Satan. Same word. But Paul sees that there's a satanic component in what he experienced. And we need to take take note of that. Satan was trying to do something in Paul's life by this thorn. But it wasn't just Satan who was active. Paul says that He was given a thorn. I was given a thorn in the flesh. In the Bible, there is something that the scholars call a a divine passive. Uh, Passive is the verb sense that indicates something is happening to you, right? Rather than that you're doing something. So, 
the divine passive seems to be a way that the biblical writers speak indirectly of what God is doing. So Paul doesn't say, I received this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, which God gave me. He just says, I was given. But, but the likelihood is <clears throat> that the, the given was given by God. And that certainly fits in with Paul's overall understanding of God's sovereignty, his superintendence of all of our situations, right? So here, here we've got this situation in, in Paul where he can look at the thorn two ways. It's a messenger of Satan. Satan's trying to accomplish something, but God has given it to him because God wants to do something as well. And that's, that's normally the situation in our lives, I think. Uh, Satan intends certain things against us. You say, what was Satan, what, what was this messenger trying to do with Paul? Well, think about it. Discourage him. Throw him off track. Create bitterness in him. Uh, all, all sorts of things that could happen. We say, well, what, what is God doing then? What's God's purpose? Certainly it wouldn't be the same as Satan's. Well, no. And Paul understands what the purpose is. Uh, Paul says the danger that God wants to deal with and to protect him from is the danger of pride or arrogance. And it relates back to what he's already told us about his visions. <clears throat> who is Paul? Well, he's the apostle who gets caught up into the third heaven in some way that he doesn't understand himself. And in that place or situation, he gets visions of things that are so powerful that he isn't even allowed to try to tell other people about it. Say, so why would God do that? Well, I'm, I'm sure it's related to the extraordinary sufferings that Paul was called to go upon throughout his life. It's a kind of compensation, if you will, for Paul. And in the light of that, Paul can easily say to himself, oh, well, imagine that. Little old me, right? I mean, you, you get how that happens. The danger of spiritual arrogance is real for Paul, not because he is necessarily aware of it, but because God is aware of it. And, and the Lord says... Paul, we're going to head this one off at the pass. And so he's given a thorn, some kind of evil that knocks him down. And it's because of the visions he's received. And here's the thing that Paul realizes, is that weakness kills pride. Weakness kills pride. When you think you've got the world by the tail and then something happens and you realize, 
you didn't have it by the tail at all. The world's got you by the tail, and you're in big trouble. Well, this happens to Paul. He suffers then in the will of God. Now, what I want you to see is that there's a pattern here, and the pattern is the J-curve. Paul's life is a life of becoming conformed to the life of Jesus and following his pattern. It happens in the J-curve. That's the way it happens to you and me, if it happens at all. And that's the bad news, (laughs) right? Uh, It's good news, but it's also the bad news because we don't like dying. Paul doesn't like dying. So here's the move downward in the J-curve. Paul gets a thorn in the flesh which causes him ongoing pain, suffering, weakness, humiliation. I mean, you can speculate about it, but depending what this thorn was, you you can see how if he's really, really sick, people don't even want to be around him. The man who's trying to bring the good news of salvation to the world. And people don't even want to be near him. This is suffering. This this is a kind of dying. But in this J-curve, Paul understands what is taking place and he embraces it. He doesn't get bitter and say, oh, you know, Lord... You owe me better than this. None of that. Paul embraces his dying. And in that then, he experiences the power of God. He experiences, we can say, a mini resurrection. Here's the way he says it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Embrace the dying of what this thorn brings to me so that I may experience the power of Christ. Not my power, right? Not self-assertiveness, not the strength of Paul's personality, but the power of Christ resting upon him. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Because, here's the principle, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's the paradox of the Christian life. And it works both ways. When you're weak, then you're strong because you're in the J-curve. And when you're strong or think you're strong, you're actually weak because you're out of the J-curve. The J-curve is weakness and then strength. All right, so, so that's Paul's understanding here, the experience of suffering which leads to resurrection and for him empowerment in being like Jesus and with him. So let's think about ourselves. Suffering will find us. Let's say it again with emphasis. Suffering will find us. 
in part because that's the world that we chose. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents chose a world where suffering would find us. So it finds everybody. But it finds Christians as well because God chooses to use this pattern of the J-curve in our lives. So sometimes people get the idea that the gospel is somehow believe in Jesus who died and rose again for us and you won't have to suffer. Where did that come from? No, suffering will find us because life is hard after all. I like, I like to watch people on bike races. Don't you? I like to watch them and imagine how their lungs are burning, how their legs are aching, how their heart is pounding in their chests. I like to imagine that. I have no interest in doing that myself. But see, you've been brought into life, and that uphill climb is something we're all in. Suffering will find us. Life is hard. The question is, what will we do in the circumstance of our suffering? That is, what will we do, particularly as believers? How will we view those experiences? And there's, there's a variety of ways, huh? You can, uh, you can, some people do, they just give up. They get, they get sidelined. They get, they get tired. And it's, it's quite understandable because the hill gets pretty steep and uh, <clears throat> it can seem like we're making no progress or that we're losing uh, ground. So that's one thing that people do in response to suffering. <clears throat> uh, some people seek to escape Because suffering is, uh, is a lot like being in prison, or it can feel that way. They seek to escape. Even this last year with COVID, uh, escapism has increased, right? Suicide has gone up. That's one way people try to escape from the sufferings of life. But there's other ways, too. Sex, drugs, alcohol, those are, those are all escape mechanisms from the, the hardness of life. Or some of us just endure cynically. That's the way life is. That's, uh, that's how it is with God. He, 
you know, you, you try to trust God and he doesn't show up. You know, I'm not, I know there's all these promises. Maybe they work for some people. They don't work for me. Or you can embrace the J-curve. You can persevere in the suffering with an attitude of hope, which is not just general hopefulness, right? It's not just a whistling in the dark. It's rather a faith that this is the way God works in us. As he worked in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Which seemed beyond all hope, for sure, right? I mean, none of his disciples were expecting what happened. That the cross would be followed by an empty tomb. That life would follow death. Unexpected. Persevering in hope. This, this is what Paul does. And in doing it, because he embraces his suffering in that way, he experiences the resurrection power of Christ in him. Yes, yeah, suffering will find us. The question is, how will we approach it? How will we deal with that suffering? So let me, let me talk for our closing moments here then. Let's take uh, an example uh, of life in the J-curve. How might this apply? And this won't uh, catch everybody, I understand that, but hopefully you can make some uh, applications for yourself, even if it's not your current circumstance. Let's talk about marriage. Marriage is a place for suffering. And I say that seriously. Now, not everybody wants to recognize that. Okay? Ah. <laughs> Harry and, uh, what's her name? See, I know what you're reading. You just gave yourself away, right? Well, uh, Harry and Meghan are one of hundreds of examples we could use of the romantic view of marriage. The romantic view of marriage is about emotion, or I would say it's about chemistry. The notion is that if you put the right chemicals together you will get a reaction, a good reaction or maybe a bad reaction. Hopefully, in the romantic model, people see each other, they're attracted to each other, the chemistry is right, and so they get married. Or, you know, today, lots of times, they just try to live together. And... Uh, as long as the chemistry is good, the marriage is good. The problem is that inevitably the chemistry stops being good. 
it is just inevitable. And, uh, and, and so the, the wish and the hope that they live happily ever after is repeatedly dashed because the chemistry doesn't hold up. And then, then they'll say something like, well, we found out that we're actually incompatible and so we get divorced or we separate or, or whatever. Doesn't matter how much money you have. I mean, think about Bill and Melinda, right? Fourth richest couple in the world. But it's not working. But the romantic model says, uh, go for the chemistry, and if the chemistry is right, magically, the marriage will be right. But uh, remember the previous generation, friends, Charles and Diana. The chemistry wasn't right, I guess. Huh? And if I, were, if I were a betting man, I'd put money on what's going to happen here. Because, not because these are particularly bad people, but because they've got the wrong understanding of what marriage is. So let's come at this more from a biblical understanding, right? A biblical model for marriage, according to uh, some of the old, old wedding ceremonies, use that phrase you may have heard, for better or for worse. And it, it put that in the marriage ceremony for good reasons, because there there is better and there's always worse. But the biblical model for marriage is not about chemistry, it is about commitment. It's about loyalty. It's about promises made and promises kept. And I, I, like, I like the ropes as an image of of commitment bound together by loyalty. Well, so as a married person, I am called into a commitment for better or for worse, and because my marriage like yours if you're married, is that your marriage is a marriage of two sinners. Two descendants of those first human beings who said, I want to be God for myself. I like being God because when you're God, people are supposed to serve you. And I just got married to this other person, and I, I guess what they're supposed to do is serve me. And things go south very quickly on that model, right? So we come into marriage with this, with this divine kind of commitment And then we find that the big enemy 
is self. Now, we often, we often miss the point by thinking that the enemy is the other person. But the enemy is, is self. Not trying to suggest that, that all marriage problems are caused only by one person, not, nothing of that, but, but in the circumstance in which I confront evil in even something like marriage and suffering, my big problem is myself. As Pogo says, we, we met the enemy, and they is us. And, and so this J-curve, this dying to self so that I can rise again, that confronts me in, in my marriage. It's often in that marriage relationship that I begin. If, if I am willing to embrace the J-curve, see, if I'm willing to die so that I can rise again, it's often in marriage that I see most clearly things about myself that I'd rather not see. And it's part because the partner who lives with you day after day can see those things better than anybody else. See, I, I can go to talk to other people and, and there's, there's a chance I can blow smoke in their eyes. And, and I can, you know, I can look good. I, I can talk piously. I can preach sermons. But then I go home and my wife sees the other side of things. And, and the other side of things, the self that wants to be served, that wants to be praised, that's the self that needs to die. That's the self that needs to embrace the cross in the pattern of Jesus. And only as that happens can there be new life and resurrection. And the interesting thing about marriage in this biblical sense is that when even one partner starts to do this, and especially if both partners are committed to the J-curve pattern of the life of Jesus, that what happens is Strangely enough, that in the midst of denying self, they begin to see love growing. And they begin to realize that what they had before wasn't love. It was just chemistry. It was emotion. It was infatuation that may have lasted for a month or a year or a couple years. But it doesn't last long enough. And they realized that in, the, in what felt like the dying of self and may have felt like the dying of marriage, what they begin to find out is that in that dying, their marriage has just begun to live. 
Isn't that remarkable? And sometimes our own experience of this, this J-curve, death and resurrection, can be almost as shocking to us as the resurrection of Jesus was shocking to those disciples on that first day of the week. Who would have thought? <laughs> yep. And who would have thought that people like you and me could actually be transformed into the image of Jesus. But that's what God does. He does it sometimes by bringing suffering into our lives unasked for, unexpected, unwelcome, And Paul has learned that pattern so deeply. He's seen it repeated again and again in his life. That he even comes to the point where he says, I'm not there yet, are you? He says, therefore, I rejoice in weakness, in suffering, in insults, in persecution. Come on, Paul, give me a break here. But he's learned this lesson, that life follows death. The pattern of Jesus' life, the pattern of the J-curve. So, evil will find you, friends. Suffering will find you. And some of you are in that place right now in powerful ways. But here's the good news. Jesus is with you. His spirit is present. And he says, I want to give you life. And if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Because whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will Find it. We'll find it. Let's pray. Lord, it's good news that we have been received by your Father. because of your absolute faithfulness. Faithfulness unto death. And and now you have been raised up, seated at his right hand where you intercede for us. and, And we are welcomed into that place. But we also, uh, we want to take seriously this other part of the good news that your spirit has come to lead us to follow your ways, to die that we too might rise up in newness of life. And Lord, you know that frightens us. You know that sometimes we want to turn back, sometimes we give up, 
And maybe some here this morning are in places of suffering where they want to give up or they have given up. So Lord, would you reaffirm your promises to us? Grant us courage. Grant us faith to walk even in the difficult places believing that out of death comes life and that you are working to conform us to your own image. For all of this, we give thanks as we entrust ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming.